Galatians chapter 4. So we've been going through a um, series called Astonished in Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we've been doing that the past couple of months, and we, as I said, entitled that series Astonished, and we looked at the first three chapters. And that title comes from, of course, Paul expressing his astonishment that the Galatians had so quickly uh, followed after a distorted version of the gospel. So we need to remember, before we go any further, what the gospel is. The gospel was, as we've said, it was literally a form of literature. It was in the Greek called the euangelion. And the gospel was a form of literature that was used by Rome. It was used to take back to the villages close to the battlefield after a battle had been won and to take back this good news, the euangelion, a gospel. So Rome would take this back through a soldier who was called a herald, and he would take back this message that spoke of the victory, that spoke of the greatness of the emperor, to worship the emperor now that the victory, that now that the battle had been won that they were free, that they should party, that they should celebrate. So when Paul says gospel and we say gospel, we're talking about the story of what King Jesus did for us, the battle that he won. And so that was the term, the genre of literature that the gospel writers co-opted from the secular culture and it became known as the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that because Jesus won the victory, because he won the battle, that we can be free. And so Paul is writing this letter to these churches he planted in this region called Galatia. And they've fallen into the trap of mixing their own battlefield heroics with Jesus's. In other words, pastors were coming in after Paul, and they were saying, Jesus is great, but the work that he did isn't really finished. Sure, Jesus won the victory, but you need to be careful when you say things like, nothing but Jesus. They were saying things like, grace isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card, okay? Be warned, it isn't about what you believe that shows you are a Christian, perhaps they said, but it's how you behave that shows that you're a Christian. And these kinds of things that we still hear today sound really good. And so these pastors who came in after Paul, they said, you guys need to get busy, get cleaned up, go back to the Old Testament and look at the extra rules too and make sure that you're applying those to your life. Make sure you're adding those to Jesus. These were the kinds of people who said, yes, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, but, and then blah, 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 whatever that may be. We have the same thing today, fill in the blank. I'm convinced that if Paul were writing a letter out of all of his letters to the church today, to the evangelical church today, this would be the letter he would write, the letter to the Galatians. Because I believe mixing 
law and gospel, because that's what was happening here. Mixing law, law, law with the good news of the gospel takes the good news of the gospel and makes it bad news. And that is the biggest problem, in my opinion, the number one issue plaguing the church today. And you can fill in the blank for what that blah, blah, blah is, that law, 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 whatever it may be, to fit it in and to mix that with the gospel, I believe, is the greatest problem plaguing the church. It's a reason why we have a PR problem in the community. It's a reason why when people think of the church, outside the church, many times they'll use the words judgmental and hypocritical. And that the reason why is because we have mixed, we've diluted the gospel with our rules, our law, whichever ones that we happen to like. So we saw earlier that in chapter one, Paul greets the Galatians. And in all, in all of his other letters, after he greets the Galatians or after he greets his readers, he would say a few nice things about them. Even the Corinthian church, who was a mess, who were a mess, he had some nice things to say to them. But this is the only letter where he greets them, and then he immediately goes into his message. He doesn't say anything nice. He immediately goes in and says, I'm astonished. I'm astonished. And so for the first half of the book, Paul's been preaching this same message of the gospel over and over again in many, many different ways. Paul was accused of preaching something new, something novel. And so he goes to the Old Testament and he shows how what he's been preaching goes all the way back, that absolutely nothing has changed, that his message of nothing but Jesus hasn't changed since all the way back to the beginning of time. So in chapter four, you would think that Paul's made his point in these first three chapters, and now he's just gonna move on. You know, you made your point, don't beat a dead horse, let's mix it up a little bit, ease up, Paul, we get it already. So Paul does take a bit of a breather here, and he makes some personal comments to the Galatians. And these may have fit in really nicely in chapter one after he said hello. He could have fit this in, but instead he places them here in the second half of the letter. And so you could say that he restarts his letter in chapter four for the second half of the letter. And we'll see that instead of watering it down, instead of changing his message, instead of spicing things up, instead of backing down, Paul doubles down. He doubles down on his message. And so as we tackle, over the next many weeks, the second half of Galatians, I've entitled this second half, Double Down. Of course, double down means that in the face of doubt, in the face of criticism, in the face of long odds, instead of folding, instead of becoming weary, instead of changing things up, instead of backing down, you grow even more committed to your approach, even more committed to your mission, even more committed to your investment, whatever it may be, even more all in. Instead of backing down, double down means you double down. You go even more all in. You press even further into it. And that's what Paul does in these last chapters, the second half. So look at verse eight. The Galatians, they were pagans. 
before they became Christians. They worship pagan gods, um, very, very dark stuff if you study it. And Paul says that much in verse 8. So look at Galatians 4, verse 8. It says there, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So like I said, they're pagans before they become Christians. And Paul says they're slaves to those gods, because with all of these idols, in fact, with all of the other religions of the world, it's all about what you do. It's all about you earning your way to whatever God it may be. It's all about your behavior and earning the favor of the gods. So Paul says that before they became Christians, they were into this pagan worship, the really dark stuff. You could even say that it was demonic. If you studied pagan worship before, you know how twisted it can become. And so the Galatians, before, get that point, they were Christians, they were slaves to these pagan rituals. Look at verse 9. But now you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless? Paul doesn't mince words, does he? elementary, you know, binky, the binky, whatever that may be for you, principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. Now, you got to get this. This is incredible what Paul does here. After reminding them of their former dark pagan worship, you know, you were, they weren't Jews, they were pagan worshipers. Paul asks how they can turn back again to that, to those weak and worthless elementary principles after knowing God, and more importantly, being known by God. Challenge here is that there's no evidence whatsoever in the letter that the Galatians were in danger of returning to those pagan rituals. That wasn't the issue that Paul was unpacking. We've already looked at what the issue was. Mixing law and gospel, grace but, things like that. Saying Jesus is kind of enough, but not really enough. That it is finished, but not really finished. Just slight variations that made the gospel no gospel at all. That was the problem. That's what they were doing. That's what Paul is addressing. And so yet Paul says, you were formerly pagans, how can you possibly turn back to that again? Paul is saying something incredible here that we've got to get. He's saying that the Galatians falling for the teaching that we need to add to our good works to the gospel, which sounds really, really good and really harmless, was the same, would be the same, as them turning back to their pagan idols. The same. Paul is lumping in this, and he does it for us today, the law, 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 blah, 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 whatever that may be to add to Jesus, that mentality, he is saying that's not harmless. He's saying that is destructive. He's saying it's the same as if you would, were to return to these weak and worthless pagan rituals. 
He's saying it's not harmless. It's not about options. It's not about you have a church here who, who is a little bit more legalistic or a little bit more, you know, with rules, and you have the church over here who's full on grace. It's kind of nice for us to have options, different strokes for different folks, right? You know, Christians, they want to have different options available to them. There's no room for that with Paul whatsoever. He doesn't say that, you know, this is kind of a slight error and it's just a little matter. He says it's the same as if they were going back to the dark pagan worship, those rituals. It's incredible. It's really amazing. That is a monster claim by Paul. And it makes sense if you dig into the meaning of what Paul says they would be returning to. These weak and worthless elementary principles. Because what we're going to see is it's really not all that different. The pagan worship, these pagan rituals, how they would get to their gods, how they would honor their gods, is really not all that different than when we add to the gospel little things here and there. It's not all that different. So if you look at verse 9, in some versions, verse 9 is translated like this, because we have to understand what these weak and worthless elementary principles are. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental? Instead of elementary, he says elemental, literally the elements, literally the elements. In Greek thought, everything goes back to the elements of nature, fire. You know, wind, air, earth, these types of things, water. According to Greek thought, everything has its root in one of those elements. This stuff went deep. You know, philosophers would philosophize about existence and why we're here and the meaning of things, and they would posit that all is fire. And so they would say that, you know, all is fire, and because all is fire, they would worship the sun god, or they would worship fire, or they would make fires to appease their gods. That's where it comes from. And, or they would say all is air, because they would look up in the sky and they would worship the sky gods, the star gods, things like that. Others would say, no, all is in fire, all is in air, but all is water, and it sounds ridiculous, but they would teach that, you know, everything starts with water. I mean, all the way back before humans, everything starts with water. All is water. And so you have this water, right? And so they would worship the ocean. They would worship the water. And then they would say that the way that man's formed is that from the water, a water man comes up out of the water. And then he makes and fashions a water ladder to climb out of the water, and then he climbs up that ladder, and then he comes on to, I guess, at that point, the earth, and so the shore, I'm not sure how that all fits together with the water, but somehow it does. And it sounds ridiculous because it really, really is. But the bottom line is, is that think about the water man. Think about the waterman or the fireman or whatever it might be. It's all about his effort. I mean, this is incredible effort by this waterman to come from the water and to become a waterman and to fashion a water ladder 
and to climb up that water ladder and then to give life to everything that we see. I mean, that was the Greek thought. And Paul says that adding to the gospel is just as ridiculous as that because both have the same thing at the bottom, all about you, all about the water man, the water woman, all about the water and all about my efforts. The elemental principle of the world is that we can save ourselves. There it is. Somehow we can save ourselves. And so what happens is we go back to that. We go back to that Jesus is great at the beginning and he's great as we go through our Christian lives every now and then. We'll touch on Jesus a little bit, but it's really about me being holy and my integrity and my honor and my behavior. It's all about me, me, me. It's all about the water man. Miraculous, heroic efforts. Back in the 80s, Michael Jackson and a bunch of his friends um, wrote and produced the song, We Are the World. Remember that song, We Are the World, We Are the Children, that whole thing. And it was a benefit for those starving in Africa. And you can go back and watch documentaries on it and how it was made and how all of these pop artists, they all came together at once. They formed a choir. You have different ones singing different lines, and they're all so jubilant. You know, they're all just in their element, so happy to see each other, so happy with each other. Just, you know, it's just one of those things that's just um, very up, very jubilant, except for one guy, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is standing, I mean, it's hysterical. You got to go watch it. There's a choir track of Bob Dylan standing, I mean, this would be me, I hate to, I hate to admit it, but he's standing in the middle of all this hoopla, right? And he just has this scowl on his face, and he's trying to sway back and forth. And then when it comes time for him to do his solo, you've got Stevie Wonder there, you've got Lionel Richie, you have all these people coaching him, and he can't even find the pitch. You know, he's like, can you play it again for me? Can you play it again? And they're like, it sounds good, it sounds good. He's like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't sound good. And he has the one line. He has this one line. Later on, he was interviewed as to, you know, why did you do it? You just looked so miserable. Why did you do it? And he said, well, it was for a good cause. And he said, but I have to say that, you know, I don't, I didn't really like the song that much because the line that I had to sing was this. There's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. And then Bob Dylan said this. He said, I don't think we save our own lives at all. I don't think it's about us saving our own lives. I think it's about something outside of us saving our own lives. Man, that guy's like, bam, isn't he? You read about him and he just somehow he comes up with the money line. Mixing law and gospel is the same as singing that we are going to save our own lives. Somehow it's all about you. It's all about me. It has devastating effects on everything. It all depends on your effort. Good people get good things. Bad people get bad things. You make your own destiny. You make your own water ladder. So get busy. Paul's saying that the error of the Galatians and the error, our error today, of mixing in law and gospel is just as bad as these weak and worthless pagan elementary principles. 
that were focused on weirdness and warped thinking and mixing law and gospel and adding to it is just as bad. Let me drive this home even more, if I haven't already. Some of you who know Jesus today, you would look back on your lives before Jesus, and you, your lives were a mess before Jesus, some of you. Some of you were into really dark stuff. Some of you were into cults. I mean, there's stories that I hear back from people of what God saved you out of is really quite incredible. Some of you literally were pagans. Some of you were really far from God. Paul is saying that after you become a Christian, mixing law and gospel, adding to it, adding the weirdness to it, adding the blah, blah, blah to it, adding to it is the same as if you were to return to those former ways. Return to that cult. Return to the dark stuff. Return to your, you know, we have to say, your BC days. You know, return to all of that when you have this air of legalism and rules and I'm holy and my integrity and my honor and all that stuff, that that's the same as you just might as well just return to the other stuff because it's all the same. It's very powerful what he says here. Maybe that's why Paul calls it a gospel, and then he says, however, maybe it's not a gospel at all. If you look at the first chapter in verse 6, I referred to it earlier, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. A different gospel that is not a gospel. It's time to start calling it what it is. All the law stuff, all the weird stuff, the adding to Jesus, the saying that his grace is enough singing it, but not really living that. It's time to call it what it is, another gospel, not Christian, not Christianity. That's what it is. It's not a variation of Christianity. It isn't an option of Christianity. It's another gospel. It's another religion. Weak and worthless elementary principles are the anything but Jesus stuff. All of that. We're all guilty of it, by the way. Verse 10, just pressing forward a little bit. Paul says, you observe days and months and seasons and years? Almost like today saying, really? You know, just really? I mean, really you're gonna go do that? that you think that's impressive? I mean, that's kind of the tone of what he's saying there. Like he's just kind of exclaiming it, that he can't believe they're actually doing these things. Verse 11, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This, this next part's rough. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. And when he says that, he means as he's like Christ. For I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. 
but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. I mean, get the picture of his relationship with these Galatians. He had some sort of ailment. He had something going on, and they received him as if he was Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So he may have had some sort of eye issue, whatever. And so he says, you would have gouged out your eyes. That's how nice you are. So many times, nice people are those who mix law and gospel. They may seem like moral people, and they probably are. They're probably better than you or me if you're a pure gospel person when it comes to their outward behavior. They're people of integrity and seriousness, so, so to say. These people had cared for Paul when Paul needed them the most. But Paul says that the real test isn't if you're going to care for him when he's sick. In fact, Paul says, I know that you would care for me when I'm sick. You did. In fact, you would have given me your eye if that's what was required. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? That's the real test in a friendship. That's the real test in a church, in a community. There it is. How nice will you be to me, Paul's asking, when I tell you the truth? Hmm? That's a big one. I mean, that's, we could do a whole series just on that. When I tell you that the law, law, law stuff is really more like the pagan stuff, are you still going to be nice to me then? When I don't care that you are nice people, and I don't give you credit for all these great things you did for me if you're going to distort the gospel, are you going to be nice to me then? When I call out the law attitude in you, are you going to be nice to me then? Will I become your enemy by telling you the truth? That's a great question to ask a friend in a relationship. Paul is saying that rejecting him because he's telling the truth is like going back to weak and worthless elementary principles where it's all about me. It's all about me making up my own truth. And we do it even in the church today. I mean, it's subtle and it sounds so good. Truth is relative. That's what we've kind of landed on. If you want to worship the sun god, go ahead. That's pagan stuff. If you want to worship the water man, go ahead. But it's crept into the church as well. It's crept in as well because everyone wants to make up their own truth. Paul won't have it. How, what do I mean? What's the, how does it make a difference? I mean, just think about relational conflict. Someone will say this. If there's a relational conflict, they'll say, you know, perception is reality, right? I mean, perception is reality. If I feel it, then it's real. The problem is, is that is a weak and worthless elementary principle of the world because perception isn't reality. Perception isn't truth. Truth is truth. It's so subtle. Well, that doesn't change the way I feel inside. Maybe instead of changing the facts to kind of be married to the way you feel inside, maybe your heart, my heart, is what really needs to change. 
I mean, this stuff goes really deep, and it's very applicable. Verse 17, Paul continues, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. And it's so good. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. I mean, in verses 17 and 18, it could say, they make much of you so that you will make much of them. There it is. Another weak and worthless elementary principle. Let me find people who will make much of me, who will baby me, who are going to focus on me, who are going to like my Facebook statuses, you know, whatever that may be. Weak and worthless elementary principles of acceptance. We're all guilty of it. Who's going to give me my court? You know, who's going to be my subjects? Who's going to come to my pity party when I invite people to it, however that may happen? Who's going to come? Because I want to be made much of. And listen, this can come from the highest levels. I can do this. I'm talking about in the church. I'm talking about elders, deacons, reach group leaders. All of us are capable of doing this, of making much of ourselves, of inviting people to a pity party, of doing all these kinds of things. Give me friends who will give me all of their energy, you know, and take care of me, making much of me. Not friends who love me enough to tell me the truth, but friends who rub my back, that kind of thing. They make much of you. I mean, you can see why Paul didn't have any friends. I mean, this stuff is just harsh. Even as I'm saying it, I'm thinking about how some of you aren't going to like me anymore, and that's cool. Um, I hope you will. I hope you'll still like me because I want you to make much of me too, just like you want. Uh, They like your statuses on Facebook. They rub your back. They make much of you. Paul says, I'm not going to make much of you. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to make much of Jesus in you. That's what I care about. I care about Jesus in you. And it was this beautiful verse in 19 and 20. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Now, Paul really takes a step of faith there when he compares anything in his life as a man to childbirth. I've been told never do that. Never say that you know what childbirth feels like because it's pretty bad. Uh, But until the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. Paul says, I'm in anguish of childbirth until you finally sing correct theological songs that I can't rip apart. No. Weak and worthless. Paul says, I'm in anguish of childbirth until you take up this cause or that cause in the political spectrum. No. Weak and worthless. Paul says, I'm in anguish of childbirth until, I've actually been told this, until you do a benediction as a pastor with your palms, I think it's this way, instead of this way. It's an actual issue. No, weak and worthless. Paul says, I'm in anguish of childbirth until you make sure that I don't feel like a victim anymore. Weak and worthless. Paul says, I am in anguish like childbirth 
He takes that step of faith that men very rarely take because we get in trouble when we say things like that. That I'm in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. There it is. That's all he cares about. And that, Reach Church, is where we are going in the year ahead of us. When you have a vision from God, when that vision is criticized or that vision is rejected or scoffed at and that vision is from God, don't blink. Don't back down. Don't change it. Don't compromise it. Don't water it down. Double down. Double down on it. I am going to challenge you, challenge us in this coming year to double down on our mission to live, to reach all people with nothing but Jesus. Where are we going this coming year? I know where we can't go. Back to weak and worthless elementary principles. Can't go there. I know that. Returning to that isn't a matter of preference. It's a matter of Christianity. It's not a matter of options. It's a matter of it being another gospel. We need to avoid that like the plague. We need to avoid it in each other. We need to call it out in each other. We need to ignore it many times when the things are said or whatever may be said, to be relentless, to double down on nothing but Jesus. Sometimes people will ask, when you say nothing but Jesus, does that mean you are saying that you can do whatever you want to do? You've been listening to preaching. I hope that you don't say that, but here's the answer. To some extent, yes, you do whatever you want to do. Do you know why? Because when you are gripped by nothing but Jesus, when you have a clear view of the cross, when your eyes are fixed on him, Christ will be formed in you more and more and more, and you will want to do things that glorify God. Your wants will change. Your desires will change. Your words will change. Your focusing on weak and worthless elementary principles will change. You'll pull the binky out. You'll change. Your wants will change. When he's formed in you, when you do sin, which you will, you'll look back and say, why in the world would I do that? You'll say, I don't want to be that way. You'll say, I don't want to turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world any longer. I don't want or need people to make much of me. In fact, I don't want any recognition at all. I want people to see Jesus. I don't want to be a distraction from that. I don't want my preferences met if it means that other people aren't going to have a clear view of Jesus. I don't want to be scared of hearing the truth about myself because I already know the truth about myself as Christ is being formed in me more and more. Does nothing but Jesus mean you can do whatever you want? Your desires, your wants will change, not all at the same time, but slowly, but slowly. As we reject weak and worthless elementary principles, as Christ is formed in you, as Christ is formed in me, your wants will change. You will want to share nothing but Jesus with others. Where are we going to want that? 
to want to invite others to experience nothing but Jesus, as challenging as it is, as much as we have, like I said last week, the highs and lows, the best of times, worst of times, when you're in the center of God's plan, you gotta duck. And as much as that happens, you're gonna want more and more people as we reject worthless and weak elementary principles that will happen more and more in our lives. You will want to support the mission of the church. You will want to give, yes, money. Yes, money, and yes, your gifts and time and serving. We want to increase the amount of people who are giving towards our mission. You are so generous, but we can't imagine what could happen if everyone were on board. If you've been on the sidelines, we need you. We need you involved in relationships. We need you involved in discipleship and small groups. We need you to step up in that way. We need you to give of your time, your money, your talents. That's it. I want the mission of nothing but Jesus to be why you want to do these things. We need you as we reject weak and worthless and Christ is formed in us, maybe God will call you to be a leader in the church. Maybe he'll call you to be an elder or a deacon or a deaconess or a reach group leader in some way and stepping up and sharing what you have inside of you to take a step of faith. Maybe you are totally mired in the all about me stuff, the waterman approach to life. That is the religion of our day. Maybe you need to come to Jesus. Maybe you know it. And you're sitting here right now, and you know that the pagan stuff is what you're into. Maybe not the blatant dark stuff, but the all about me stuff. The solution for you is the same as the solution for everyone else. And that is nothing but Jesus. Let's stand together and lift our voices.